For those of you who don't know, Margaret Feinberg has become a really good friend of mine. She and her husband, Life, have had Mary and I over to their home on many occasions, and it's always wonderful. Met Margaret several years ago at a conference. A decade ago? It was a decade ago. Scum was four. And uh, I was speaking, and she was speaking, and we hit it off. She and Leif and I had just a great conversation outside on some patio at some point. It was amazing. And, uh, you know, you could tell at that point that she was destined for greater things than leading workshops at FutureGen. Um, she has gone on to write many books, some of which you don't even know because she ghostwrites them. Lots of Bible studies. She also has uh, been speaking all around the country and the world. And so the fact that she's here at Scum of the Earth is just proof that God likes us. So without further ado, let me introduce my friend, Margaret Feinberg. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, thank you. Let's pray. Father, tonight we are so grateful to be your children. We are so thankful that you sit on that throne and see and comprehend far more than we ever have or do. Jesus, I ask that you just, you just pull up a chair beside each one of us. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. May we recognize you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to begin by asking you a question, and that is simply, how many of you have ever heard that in a single moment, your life can change forever? Anyone? I had heard that. I had seen that play out in people's lives, but I always thought that kind of thing happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Until last spring, I reached over to itch something underneath my arm and I felt a small bump. First, I thought it was just a mosquito bite, but as I pressed, I realized that it was a hardened mass. And I thought, well, maybe it's just my imagination. If I keep pressing, it'll go away, but it wasn't budging. And so I went to my husband, Leif, the six foot eight guy back there, and we've been married for over a decade. And I looked at him and I said, honey, I need you to play doctor. And a boyish grin crept across his face. And I said, not that kind of doctor. And he pressed against the small lump and he nodded. And so I had to call the doctor and schedule a mammogram followed by an ultrasound and a biopsy. We were out in California. It was about 15 minutes before I was scheduled to speak at a large camp and conference center, and my phone rang. And one of the golden rules of speaking is never answer your phone right before you're going to speak because nothing good will come of it. But I didn't recognize the number, and I hit answer. Before I knew it, I was in the conversation with a doctor, and the words soon blurred with carcinoma, oncology, surgery. I hung up the phone and I had a scrap of paper with a few doctors' names and some phone numbers and I knew I had to go find Leif. I beelined up to the conference center and he was preparing the PowerPoint slides and I waved him and I said, come on out, and he did. And I never had to say a word. He just knew. My eyes are his love language. 
And he wrapped me in his big, strong embrace, and we stood there knowing that we had crossed a threshold in life through which this life was never going to be the same. And during that first day, in that first few weeks, I felt so many emotions. I felt fear. I felt terror, panic, anger, discouragement, depression, shock, the full gamut. It felt like my heart was ripped out and turned to hamburger meat, so raw and sensitive to the touch. And yet there was something else that rose up in me that day. There was this holy resolve that if I was thrust onto this kind of a battlefield, if I was thrust into this kind of fight, then I wanted to fight with a rather unusual weapon. And it's one that's tucked into Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, and any of you brought your Bibles or use some sort of device to access a Bible, feel free to do that. Chronicles is tucked in to the Old Testament. Feel free to use an index to get there. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, what we read is that a good king by the name of Jehoshaphat is ruling over the land. He is the fourth king of Judah. And he is a guy who has instituted religious reform. He has sent missionaries out to proclaim God's law and he has stood firmly against adultery. But his shining moment comes in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when he is suddenly thrust on to the battlefield. He finds himself and Judah not just surrounded by one or two, but three different armies. He is facing impossible odds. He is outnumbered, and he is in the fight of his life that he never signed up for. He responds with a day of prayer and fasting. When in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, we get to listen and eavesdrop on his prayer. He says, for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And with those words, he makes the confession of what most of us feel when we're thrust onto the battlefield and we feel helpless, we feel clueless, we have no idea what to do. But he reminds us that we can still make that resolve that our eyes are on you. And somewhere out of the divine blue, a prophet shows up on the scene who never appears earlier in scripture or after, but only here by the name of Jehaziel. And he looks at King Jehoshaphat and he says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. You do not need to fight this fight because the God is going to fight on your behalf. And the next morning, Jehoshaphat wakes up in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20, and it says, After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness, as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And you may recognize that declaration, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, because it appears almost a half a dozen times throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament. It is the confession of thanks, of gratitude to God, and it is the proclamation of abiding in his fierce love. Now, traditionally, whenever an army went out, they were led by the strongest and the bravest warriors. And whenever a battle commenced, it began with a battle cry. But what we read in this passage is that God's people are going out, Jehoshaphat is going out with his army, and they put a holy boy band at the front. 
And in verse 22, it says, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. What follows is three days of plundering. That speaks not only to the abundance and the generosity of God, but it also speaks to the size of the armies that they faced. Following that, a grand gala celebration commences throughout the nation. And a dread falls on all of the surrounding countries so that none of them attack Judah as long as Jehoshaphat remains king. Now, some would read the story and they would say, well, it's obvious that the people didn't really have to fight because God was fighting on their behalf. And while at one level that is true, that whatever battlefield we find ourselves on, ultimately we are the, not the one who is fighting. It is God who is fighting to defend us. He is the one at work. What I want to suggest to you at, tonight is that that army, when they went out, they did not go out empty-handed. The scripture says they went out singing and praising. That word sing in the Hebrew is the word renah. It means to let out a ringing cry of joy. They literally rejoiced, which means to take joy with them. And what I've discovered over the course of the last 15 months is that more than whimsy, joy is a weapon we can use to fight life's battles. Because if most of us are honest, we all in one way or another are living in a fight. Sometimes we pick the fight and sometimes the fight picks us. Sometimes the fight comes like mine in the form of a diagnosis, the words from a doctor or a psychologist with a title or a label, you know that unless God intervenes, you are never going to be able to shake. For others of you, the fight that you are on comes through the form of an accident or possibly a miscarriage or struggling with infertility. For some, the fight is with the pangs that come after divorce or suffocating debt or being disowned by your parents. For others, it's the loss of a loved one, the loneliness that comes with an empty nest, the realization that you have to go back to work at that toxic job for some of you, the fight today is just to stay sober. And for some, it is the realization that this life, it just has not turned out the way that you thought it would. What weapon will you choose to respond? Psychologists tell us that most of us will choose one of three responses. We will choose to fight, we will choose flight, or we will choose to freeze. But in the practical day-to-day, -day, the weapons that most of us select are, are things like anger or denial. Others of us may prefer sarcasm or complaint. Some of us just slip into a deep funk that no one can pull us out of no matter how hard they try. But I believe there is a different weapon that you can choose to fight with, and it is the weapon of joy. And tonight, I just wanted to provide a handful of practical tactics, how you can begin to fight back with joy. And the first one comes from a passage found in Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. And I remember when I was been going through this, people sent me all kinds of scriptures, and many of them were encouraging and very nice. But this was one that when I finally went and read it, it just stuck so deeply inside of me. 
There was something about it that just spoke to, to right where I was. Because you see, back in the day leading up to Judges chapter 1, way back, there were the Israelites, and they were living under the wicked rule of Pharaoh. And God, in his love, raised up a guy by the name of Moses, gave him mission impossible, and used him to set the Israelites free. After they escaped Egypt, they went into the desert where they wandered around, led, led by a GPS. They kept using the word recalculating for nearly 40 years. Eventually, they got to the border of the promised land. And suddenly it became a no-fly zone for Moses. So Joshua and Caleb take the helm. Now for all this time, the Israelites have been thinking the promised land is described as a land with milk and honey. This is a place with killer pomegranates and fabulous figs. I mean, this is God's gift certificate for country buffet or super buffet. It is all you can eat. And they finally get to the edge of the promised land and they discover there is a bouncer at the door. They are going to have to wrestle for everything they put on their plates. They literally find that there are giants in the land. And so Judges opens up with the Israelites fighting the Canaanites for the promised land. And they are advancing tribe by tribe, foe by foe, scoop by scoop. And suddenly... Their general, Caleb, decides to raise the stakes. And in Judges chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Then from there he, Judah, went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name Debir formerly was Kiriah-ir, which means city of the books. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriah-ir and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksah for a wife. And Athoniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksah for a wife. Then it came about, when, he, when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. What we catch a glimpse of is a general, Caleb, who is on a winning streak. Suddenly he comes to one town and he decides to up the ante and offers his own daughter as the winning prize for whoever conquers the city. We're starting to catch a glimpse that the daughter is like a literal trophy wife that his dad is selling out. This is a raw deal for her. But Othoniel, whose name means hero, steps up to the plate. He conquers the land, he wins Aksa's hand in marriage, and they settle in the Negev. That is a southern region in Israel, which is like moving to Phoenix in August, okay? This is dry, difficult desert, which is famed for having sand dunes that reach over 100 feet high, 10 stories. This is in hospitable territory, unbearable conditions, a place where life seems impossible. And though that is so challenging, it is also the place where we are invited to enter the story. 
Because sooner or later, most of us find ourselves living in places where we would not choose. Often it's related to a life stage. We may want to be married and we find ourselves single. We may want to have kids and we find ourselves unable. We may want financial security and instead find piles of bills. We may want to feel healthy and strong and instead we feel like I feel like my superpowers have been taken away. But for Axel and for us, the story doesn't end there. Because Axel recognizes that she cannot survive without water. And so she urges her husband to ask her father, Caleb, for a piece of thriving land. But before Othoniel can make the request, Axel finds herself face to face with her father. And it says in verse 14 that she alighted from her donkey. Now that does not mean that she had gas. What that means is that she got off of her actual donkey. And donkeys are used throughout the scripture often to illustrate the absurd and the foolish. In Numbers 22, we read about Balaam's donkey who talked. Or in 1 Samuel 9, we, reach, we read about the introduction of Saul, where we start to get to the glimpse of a leader who literally cannot find his own donkey. And so here we find that Aksa is getting off of her donkey. And rather than wallow in self-pity or sink into depression, she gets off her donkey and acts with boldness and with courage. And in response, Caleb, her father, asks, what do you want? And she says in verse 15, give me a blessing, or what some translations list as a special favor. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. In essence, what she says is, if I must live here, then give me what I need to survive. And Caleb gives his daughter not just what she asks for, but so much more. He gives her both the upper and the lower springs. And if an earthly father will do that for his earthly daughter, how much more will our heavenly father do that for us? You see, this prayer for springs of water, it's not like the prayer of Jabez. This is not a prayer saying, God, expand my territory, give me more, make me rich. It's not treating God like some cosmic vending machine. Rather, it is a prayer that says, if I must live in the desert, if I must live in this difficult area, give me what I need to survive. And I believe that prayer for springs of water is not just a representation of what we need to survive, but it is a representation of the very living water, Jesus Christ. And so I began to pray on a daily basis for springs of water. I said, Lord, if I have to live in this miserable, difficult condition, if I have to endure all of these treatment, then give me springs, give me springs. I don't even know what those look like. But what I began to discover as I pray day after day, and when you take one simple prayer and you pray it day after day, the posture of your life, it begins to change. Because suddenly you start looking for the specific ways that God is going to answer. You start living wide-eyed for the ways that God is responding. I started to appreciate just a little bit more the perfect timing of that email of encouragement, that card that arrived in the mail, the chance conversation with someone who I had never met before. 
But during this season, I also knew that Leif and I were approaching our 10-year wedding anniversary. And that's kind of a big deal. And here I am, sick as a dog, and I'm thinking, how do we celebrate it? And how do we do this? And one of the challenges with chemotherapy, by the way, is that people love to give you blankets. They think giving you a blanket is the nicest, best thing that they can do. And they don't know that you are the human torch. You feel 150 billion degrees all the time. And so I thought, man, if, if Leif and I are going to use our little miles and our hotel points to go somewhere, we got to go someplace cool where, where I'm not just going to die in the heat. And so I asked Leif, I said, Leif, if you could go anywhere, if you could knock something off of your bucket list, what do you want to do? And he says, Margaret, I would love to be in the studio audience of America's Test Kitchen. One fan right there. Oh, yeah. It is the foodie nerd show on PBS where they scientifically test every recipe. So we go online and we start researching. And it turns out that they are recording, they only do it once a year, the next session of America's Test Kitchen in, right outside of Burlington, Vermont. And so I think, perfect, it's cool, I'm not going to be hot, we use our miles, we book it, we're going to go, we're going to be in the studio audience, we're so excited, but I think, man, our actual anniversary, September 20th, we've we got to do something special. So I go online, I say, what's going on in Burlington, Vermont? And you'll never guess, Bill Cosby was performing. I know, I am so excited. So I go on to book the tickets and it says sold out. So I call the box office, it says sold out. I'm thinking, man, it can't be sold out. So I drop the C card, I drop the anniversary card. The guy's like, no, it is really all sold out. So I'm thinking, fine, so what else can we do? So I start putting ads on Craigslist. Anybody want to sell their tickets to Cosby? Leif tracks down Bill Cosby's office and writes them, like we are hardcore going after these tickets, and we don't get anywhere. But we still keep praying for springs of water. And three days before we leave for Burlington, Vermont, the box office calls, and they said, Margaret, Two tickets just freed up. And I said, wait just a second, I'll get my credit card. And I, so I grab my credit card, I give him the number, I'm so excited. I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you, this is amazing. And he says, but you, you, haven't, asked, you haven't asked the question I've been waiting for. And I go, what's that? He said, you haven't asked, where are the seats? I said, the show's sold out, I'll sit in the rafters, I'll squat on the floor, I don't care. But where are the seats? He said, your tickets are front row center. And in the midst of being poisoned and tortured, we traveled to Burlington, Vermont, and sat at the feet of one of America's all-time greatest comics and lapped up the sweet, refreshing laughter and the provision of God. So tonight, I don't know what kind of desert you find yourself in. For some of you, it's just a dry patch. But for others of you, it is dune after dune as far as the eye can see. Whatever your affliction, your heavenly father, he knows your situation. And the question is, will you get off of your donkey? And will you ask God for what you need to survive in the place that you find yourself in? The second tactic, after praying for springs of fat water, that I found really helpful in fighting back with joy 
is one that most of us don't really want to do. It calls us to actually do the thing that we least want to do. And it's something that's tucked into the book of Habakkuk. 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 And I've always wanted to give him a show on the Food Network so it could start out, Habakkuk is cooking for you tonight. And those of you who have a Bible can turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Because the name Habakkuk means wrestle or embrace. And he tells a story basically of a man who wrestled with God until he embraced God. And he was ruling during a time when a bad king was ruling over the land. And he was baffled by the circumstances in Judah. Because King Jehoiakim was corrupt. And that corruption had spread throughout the land like gangrene. Until the people were poisoned by idol worship and their hearts were inflamed by rebellion. And in their sickness, they forgot God, which isn't too different in some ways than our culture today. And yet God answers that he is doing something. Aslan is on the move. He is raising up the wicked Babylonians in order to crush Judah. But this just confuses Habakkuk even more because he asks, why would the Lord use evil to bring about good? And when he doesn't get an answer, it's like Habakkuk marches out to the city wall like a little stubborn kid. He crosses his arms with his red face and he says, I'm not leaving until you answer me. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long he stood there. If it was a few hours, a few days, months, or years. But eventually God speaks. And he tells Habakkuk that the plans are fixed. Judah will be judged. The tumor of sin must be cut out. But what appears evil, it's actually going to bring healing. And we see a man who is wrestling with God, who embraces God. Those who read Habakkuk, which wouldn't take you very much time, are reading a story of movement of fear to faith, of worry to worship. But in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he makes the most stunning declaration when he says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God my Savior. He declares that even when the pantry runs empty, even when the provision runs dry, even when life is stripped of its pleasures, even when all you fear is tears but trust, that you can still choose to rejoice when it makes no sense. And that tactic of choosing to rejoice when it makes no sense is one that could easily be dismissed of a dusty Old Testament prophet except it's the Apostle Paul who continues to herald and demonstrate this message in the New Testament. This is the man who in Philippians 4, chapter 4, 4, verse 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Something deep inside of me wants to rip out that word always. I mean, come on, Paul. Don't you just mean rejoice in the Lord sometimes or in the good times or when you're not talking to an oncologist? I mean, seriously, always rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I would want to dismiss Paul as a guy who is living with rainbows and sunshine and puppy dogs, except this was a man who was wrongly imprisoned on multiple occasions. He was beaten, tortured, starved, and shipwrecked, and still instructs us to rejoice in the Lord always. 
And the question I found myself asking was, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do that when all the lights go out, when life becomes so difficult? And what I discovered is the secret to doing it is that you do it one square inch at a time. And you choose to rejoice when it makes no sense in this square inch and that square inch and that square inch and that square inch as you keep moving forward in life. Leif and I live over in Morrison, and the hospital that we had to go to was Anschutz. And, I mean, you get stuck in traffic on day 285, that's well over an hour drive one way. And as we're driving out there, we started to put a song on, and it was a song that we sang early in the night, if you were here at 6 o'clock, that song by Matt Redman, which says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his holy name. And there were days with literally tears racing down my cheeks, knowing that the next treatment that I was going to go to was more painful and worse than the last, that I would make that declaration. And I would choose to rejoice when it made no sense, one square inch at a time. We began to discover that any place, any latitude and longitude can be claimed for the worship and the glory of God that you can begin to transform doctors' offices and waiting rooms. One day I climbed into an MRI machine, the thing that I like to call the ride the donut at the hospital. And I'm in that long tube and you have a muffled voice who's going, sit still, sit still. And you're never quite sure exactly what they're saying, but you know not to move. And as I'm laying there, I am starting to wonder, man, has anybody claimed this place for the worship of God today? And in that tunnel began to praise ever so quietly the name of our God. Why is it so important to rejoice when it makes no sense? Because you will become what you proclaim. And if you proclaim the goodness and the faithfulness and the kindness and the love and the affection of God, then you will reflect more of him. So the question for you tonight is where is your square inch? Where is that place? For some of you, it is an office. It is sitting behind a laptop or on a phone. For others of you, it might be in your kid's bedroom. For others of you, it might be in your own bedroom on that pillow that has those dusty, salty tears from night after night. But will you choose to claim that place? Because when you do, when you get hold of that square inch, you in essence proclaim that the darkness has not and it will not win. And the third and final tactic is one that came as I wrestled through how people responded. Because any of you who have ever been through crisis knows this. But if you have been through a difficult season, the people don't know really what to say. And even if you've been through a difficult season, then somebody else has a different flavor of it, and you don't know what to say to them either. And so for any of you who feel like you have been caught in a bad episode of people say the dumbest things, I'm the first to say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. But one of my friends, Ron, came up to me a few months ago and he said, Margaret, I wanted to say something encouraging and hopeful to you, but I, just, I didn't know what to say. And I didn't want to say the wrong thing. So I just I went to Jesus. I started praying. And I've actually been praying for several months about what, what would the Lord want to say to you during this time? And he says, and I think I finally have what it is. And I'm looking at him thinking, wow, this conversation could go south really fast. And he says, Margaret... 
what I sense the Holy Spirit is saying is your heavenly father wants to speak to you. Your heavenly father wants to speak to you. Because somewhere along the way, I had forgotten. Somewhere along the way, I think we all forget. C.S. Lewis once observed that God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. And I think one of the reasons that God shouts is because pain is so stinking noisy. It is so loud. It demands your mental, your emotional, your physical energy. It becomes deafening. And so as Ron spoke those words, I began to become even more intentional about spending time in this book, about reading and studying. And as I did, a few weeks later, I sensed the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly Father speak to me. And when, when God speaks, I don't hear any audible voice. Okay, I just have never experienced that. I, it sounds like it's almost an internal voice or a, a, a thought that pops into your mind, and it's not your own. And whenever you have one of those, the first thing you do is you take it to Scripture. This is the foundation and the filter for all that you think you're hearing from God. And so the thing that I, I, I sense the Holy Spirit saying was simply, I will sustain you. I will sustain you. The first thing I did was made a beeline for scripture and I go and started going, Lord, where do you say this in scripture? Show it to me in your word. Then I stumbled on this passage in Isaiah 46 verse 4 and it says, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. The word in Hebrew for the word sustain is saval. It means to carry the heavy load. And there are times, even now, even though fortunately there is no evidence of cancer that is detectable, that even as we're in the process of rebuilding our lives, that the load is just too heavy. It is too much. And there are days that I just look and I go, Jesus, I can't, I can't, I just can't. You have to carry this because I can't. And I cling to those words, I will sustain you. I don't know what you walked in here with tonight, but what I do know more than anything is that your heavenly father, he wants to speak to you. And when you hear his voice, however he delivers it to you, and it will often be just a few syllables, syllables that to anyone else will mean nothing, but to you, they mean everything. Because that's all it takes, just one word from God to change everything. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you, when you find yourself in a fight, will ch begin choosing to fight back with joy. That you will choose to pray for springs of water, to rejoice when it makes no sense, and to know that your Heavenly Father wants to speak to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God of joy that in your right hand are pleasures forevermore, that in the fights of life we are not the one who does battle, but you do it on our behalf. And we are the ones who proclaim your goodness and your faithfulness and your love even in the midst. Father, strengthen the hearts of those here tonight. Strengthen their resolve to follow you with joy in anything. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.